Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. Welcome to More Than Amused Podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts, hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to More Than Amused. I am Stani. And I am Sadie. And thank you for being back here mm-hmm. and checking us out. I am actually really excited about this episode. We are kind of, this is like a really fun topic, but I don't know how to explain exactly what it is. It's like political women and how the arts have portrayed them. Yes. And maybe, or their influence on the arts. Yes. There's like this weird obsession that society has with royalty that I think especially you can see today, even with the British royal family, and just how they're the women are turned into these like muses like objects like Mm -hmm. different aspects and a lot of the times it moves away from them as real people and so we're covering six different female political leaders throughout history and just kind of the way they've been depicted over time starting i talked about this before we even recorded but like (laughs) <laughs> the amount of times that we like pick on a topic and I'm like, eh, maybe we'll find something. <laughs> and then by the end of it, I'm just like scrambling, like <laughs> wanting to read more and more articles because I'm like, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, what have I found here? So uh, yeah, I'm excited about it. Now. No, I am too. I have to say though, this is probably by far the most depressing research I've ever done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you think female artists had it bad, <laughs> So are the female royals, <laughs> women in, roy- in politics. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah, like this, oh, these are tragic. Like, yeah. tragic. It is not every girl's dream to be a princess. <laughs> Stay like, away. Oh, do not go be a princess. You do not want to be queen. No, not at all. So, yeah. I used to have a t-shirt that said, forget princess, I'd rather be queen. Oh, I don't think I'd want to be either after this. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. I will stick with what I am, actually. Thank you very much. Um, no, it was kind of funny. Last night, after doing some research, I was sitting there. And then, <laughs> excuse anyone who's like, excuse me if you're not religious. But I just started praying. And I was like, thank you so much that I was born in this century. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, I would not have wanted to put up with any of that any crap. Of this. Yeah. And I've like felt that way before, but this like really solidified it for or me. Or it's kind of like, we've talked about it before, but like the sentiment of like, oh, I was born in the wrong decade. And it's like, you know what? No. This decade has plenty of issues, yeah. but like, let's think about it for a second. <laughs> Were you? Were you really born in the wrong decade? Because. Mm. Now, I remember I used to like 
really think about different decades and be like, oh, it would have been so fun. Oh, it would have been so fun. And then I got asked that in a class as like a like a get to know you question. And I remember uh-huh. sitting there and I was like, the 90s. <laughs> yeah, like, I would love <laughs> the the 2010s. <laughs> oh, wait, that's when I grew up. <laughs> yeah, because it was just like, I don't want to go back to any of that. The 50s were not poodle skirts and fun it was racism and protests and uh, yeah. it's just like no and depressed housewives yeah it's fine. like i'm i'm okay with where i'm at thank you very much so, yeah but let's get into it but anyways <laughs> shall we yeah let's do it do you want to start us off yes so we're gonna do our best to go in relative chronological yeah. order here. so starting off with Cleopatra, Cleopatra, which is obviously a classic. Oh, yeah. Um, so she was born around 70 or 69 BC to King Ptolemy. Oh, dear. I should have checked that. <laughs> I just realized. It's oh, okay. well. You didn't but, study ancient Egyptian in preparation for this episode? Uh, in fact, I did not. So <laughs> I admit. Fine. I've been exposed. <laughs> But they ruled over Egypt, but her family was actually Greek. Fun fact. I did not know that actually until now. Um, This article I found, it said that like drama dominated her lineage, which we will find is a trend as we continue. So her brother, who who she was supposed to co-rule with after her father's death, he forced her out of the country. Oh, my gosh. So then Cleopatra retaliated with military forces and lost. And then... 48 BC, Julius Caesar defeated Pompey the Great in Alexandria and Pharsalus coups that made him dictator of the Roman Empire. He stayed in the palace Mm -hmm. and shortly after Cleopatra joined him, secretly returning to the palace from exile. So Julius Caesar was in Egypt Cleopatra joined him secretly. Okay. So the pair reunited in love. They were in love. And together they became, they regained the Egyptian throne. I am so simply like summarizing years and years of history here. I think that's going to be like kind of a theme for this whole thing. We obviously cannot go into extreme yes political discussion about the context of each time period and the years of their reign so like as i'm reading this i'm like how did she get military forces to like retaliate against her brother when she was exiled not sure but i'm sure that's a very interesting thing to go look up more about no that sounds really cool i know so she governed in egypt for 22 years which was long past um, Julius Caesar's assassination in 44 BC. Oh, wow. And I know. So, but after Julius Caesar's assassination, excuse me, her and Mark Antony, who was a potential successor to Caesar's throne, um, like those two ruled together. Mm-hmm. But actually, uh, like they both died via a mutual suicide when their contender, Octavian, defeated them. So they ruled together for a long time and then died together when they, you know, would no longer Very be Very Romeo and Juliet of them. Yeah. I mean, and there is a Shakespeare play yeah. called Antony and Cleopatra. So yep, there you go. There's kind of a myth 
that Cleopatra used a poisonous snake to incite her death and that's how she killed herself. That's probably not true. 15th century artists, though, depicted it as such. And then Shakespeare's play, Antony and Cleopatra, Mm. also very much promoted this. Of course, like Caesar and Antony, who which were the men she was married to, are very much remembered for their military prowess. Cleopatra never really got her own due for her accomplishments. And that's kind of because of how she ended up being portrayed in art. So there's this really cool quote from the article here. It said that not only does she command an army and navy, negotiate with foreign powers and preside over temples, she also dispensed justice and regulated an economy, which was from her biographer, Stacey Schiff. But then she also suffered from pretty bad publicity. Octavian, who was the person who ended up you know overtaking them and defeating them began like a centuries-long promotion of the defeated queen as a wanton temptress so after she died he kind of went on to smear her name and it kind of went on like from michelangelo to like even more modern hollywood directors Mm -hmm. they really disregarded her political claim and brilliance also by the way she was fluent in nine languages oh my gosh which is like so it just like shows how smart she was yeah as the biographer says that it's less threatening to believe her fatally attractive than fatally intelligent which i really love that yeah i feel like everyone when they bring up like cleopatra they just talk about how she was so beautiful yeah uh yeah instead of all of the other stuff about her accomplishments that it's like she was literally a queen in egypt so Mm -hmm. There's got to be some, like, intelligence there to be a ruler. Something Who knows, though? that's, like, really cool that you brought up, though, is that, like, she was expected to co-rule with her brother from the beginning. Yeah. I think that's awesome because it also shows that, like, her education wasn't restrained due to her gender. She probably learned alongside her brother and was probably... Yeah, you know, that's a really good point because Mm -hmm. normally, like, when you think of royalty and lineage, it's just assumed that, like, the brother will take on the throne. But, yeah, if she was intended to co-rule, obviously, whatever system she was in was like, no, it's not, you know, just the patriarchal line here. Like, we want both sister and brother to rule together, which is really cool. Yeah, no, that's That's, really incredible. I I didn't even think of that. Because that means that, like, honestly, she was even smarter than we probably even know. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, that would mean her education was not restrained in any way whatsoever. And that's really remarkable. Going back to like how she's now just like seen as like a pretty seductress. Some of the earliest depictions of Cleopatra did not really present her as like a head turner. Coins dating back to the 30 B.C. 30s BC I don't know how you'd say that but anyways they portray the ruler as a pretty ordinary looking woman and then there's a first century biographer Plutarch who offered one of the earliest written accounts of the queen he highlighted her charisma more than her beauty but he also did blame Mark Antony's fall to her seductions (laughs) so in other words he continued Plutarch's myth of Cleopatra as the ultimate femme fatale which is like I mean we talked about that trope in the like just our movie tropes episode so it's a pretty common thing that even back to like cleopatra in the first century people were describing her as that type of seductress lame there's also political reasons why um different artists rendered her differently napoleon invaded egypt in 1798 looting the country and bringing like a lot of things back to paris and so that caused a lot of excitement about 
Egypt. And then, and then at the same time, Britain annexed the country in 1882 as it expanded more of its overseas empire. And so then there was Reginald Arthur's The Death of Cleopatra, The Stroke of Death, which is a painting that kind of exoticizes the queen's death by including the animal prince and a blur of incest. So mm-hmm. basically kind of what happened is like the West Western countries kind of started taking more of an interest in Egypt and things like that. And then, you know, started portraying the queen Cleopatra as like something really exotic and like, you know, maybe more what you would stereotypically think about Egypt versus like maybe what was actually true. And then that even happened in America where sculptors started to take a different, um, their own approach to it. Basically, you know, Egypt was just a topic of like a lot of fascination. I mean, you know, like mummies, tomb raiders, things like that. But some like interesting, like different depictions of it though, is like I mentioned, a lot of the paintings would like show her like, you know, getting bitten by a snake. Um, mm -hmm. like an American sculpture, like what they did is they put the snakes as like a part of her crown. Like kind of Medusa. Yeah. Kind of Medusa like, and I wonder if it like made her more like stronger and regal. So it's more of like, it was like something she owned and was a part of who she was rather than like her own demise. Yeah. That makes sense. I don't know. Something that I, (laughs) this last paragraph from an article I found just made me laugh, but it said, yet artists and Hollywood weren't done with her yet. As Elizabeth Taylor portrayed the title character in the big budget 1963 film Cleopatra and subsequently launched into a romance with her co-star Richard Burton, the queen's name adopted entirely new connotations, money, glamour, and tabloid stories. In other words, Cleopatra had finally become distinctly American, (laughs) which I thought was really funny. (laughs) That is funny. So basically, to kind of sum up it, it's just interesting how to read through that and kind of realize that how like different political events even shifted it, right? Yeah. Like the king, I don't know if it was the king. Yeah, I guess whoever came after her, Octavian, he made a very purposeful campaign to like smear her name and different biographers writing her a very, you know, specific certain way. And then like as different countries came into Egypt and kind of developed a fascination that turned into, you know, kind of making it this exotic, cool thing to be from Egypt and, you know, changing maybe who Cleopatra actually was. Yeah. And then, of course, it continuing to maybe then just being all about the romance between Julius Caesar and Mark Antony instead of it being like hey actually cleopatra is a you know intelligent woman on her own right yeah and isn't just the you know the seductress of powerful men and the two of them together are not just a halloween costume (laughs) yes (laughs) that too Uh, i feel like it's always one of the most popular halloween costumes especially by like celebrities they're like cleopatra and mark antony well, this one's a little bit happier, actually. Um, next one is Empress Theodora from the Byzantine Empire. Um, unlike Cleopatra, I feel like she isn't talked about as much. Yeah, truthfully, I know next to nothing about her. Yes. So the reason she's on this list is because I am recreating a mosaic of her from a church for my medieval um, art history class. So that's where she popped up there. And um, the reason it caught my attention is because, (laughs) okay, there are very, very few depictions of women in art where their names are actually written. 
and we actually know who they are. (laughs) Okay, I didn't know this. (laughs) Yeah, especially in medieval art. And I was trying to find something that would connect to women in any possible way for every single project I did. (laughs) And and this was the only one, because it was a lot of like church mosaics and art and the scriptures and everything like that, very like religious um, artwork. And a lot of the times it was like unnamed saints Or, you know, like, obviously Mary came up a lot. But when there was this mosaic of an empress in Mm -hmm. a church, I was like, interesting. Who is this person? And turns out she's probably one of the earliest feminists we have record of. And she's awesome. So she was actually born in 500 A.D., And she was not born into a wealthy family or a royal family of any kind. Uh, She actually followed her sister's example at a very early age, and they both worked in a Constantinople brothel. (laughs) Both of them were employed as actresses, which at the time was not um, just acting on the stage. You also were a prostitute basically so you did like shows on stage and then would come off and provide sexual services off stage as well um they actually had a pretty wealthy and diverse clientele i don't know if that's how she met the byzantine emperor but um regardless of that fact in 524 um justin the byzantine emperor passed a new law decreeing that reformed actresses could legally marry outside their rank if approved by the emperor himself (laughs) well i mean (laughs) don't break the law make your own (laughs) because before that it had been completely illegal for anyone of any rank to marry an actress because that was a prostitute also, he extended the law to her daughter. Um, she had an illegitimate daughter, and he extended the law to daughters and posterity reformed actresses as well. I love that it had to be like a reformed actress. So he was like, a she won't be performing actress. anymore, but she did previously. <laughs> and we forgive it. <laughs> yeah. And this allowed Theodora's daughter to find a suitable ranked match instead of uh-huh. being confined by her birth status as well so it was actually super generous of him to do that um yeah and soon after this law was passed he married theodora and then just two years after the marriage they both ascended to the throne and ruled the byzantine empire so um she was the empress of the eastern roman empire is what they called it at the time um and something that's really cool about her is they were very much so like co-rulers together Mm -hmm. like it was not like he's in charge and she just throws parties it was very much so like she shared in decisions plans political strategies participated in state councils um justinian himself called her his partner in my deliberations and it was said that he sought her views on practically any matter before issuing orders which i think is incredible for a historic match and then um some notable moments in january 532 two rival political factions in the emperor in the empire the blues and greens which is hilarious because 
I feel like that <laughs> looks so much like our political climate right now. Anyway, yeah. they had a riot that happened during a chariot race, and it was just causing a ton of problems. They were threatening. During a chariot race? Yeah, which, I why don't we have a movie about this? But anyway, <laughs> the nobles were preparing to flee because of how bad it was getting. They were worried that these political factions and their riot were going to overthrow the kingdom. And Theodora interrupted the court as they were preparing and encouraged them and said that it would be better to die a royal than to flee as a fugitive living in exile for the rest of their days. And she was quoted as saying, royal purple is the noblest shroud. So Mm. she actually convinced everyone to stay and they were successful in taking down the riot and were able to go on continuing to rule, which is awesome. Um, she also was a very powerful and feared female leader and had a lot more influence than many women were allowed at her time. Um, men were not allowed to approach her without her consent. They had to bow down and kiss her feet before she'd even let them talk to her. Like, cause she definitely structured a lot of things so that she was given the level of respect that she deserved as empress regardless of her birth and something that's amazing is that a lot of her work as an empress was involved in helping underprivileged women she would buy women that had been sold into prostitution and then free them um yeah she would fund their future she would go in and like shut down a brothel basically and take everyone and send them off to somewhere else to live in peace without having to worry about it she also expanded rights of women in justinian's rule and so legislations Uh were passed that expanded rights of women in divorce property ownership um they instituted the death penalty for rape which like power yeah forbade exposure of unwanted infants um gave mothers more guardianship rights over their children and forbade the killing of a wife who committed adultery which was a really big deal because before that that was completely legal um she ended up dying from what they believe now would have been cancer in June of 548 at the age of 48. Um, some other sources say she was 51, but it was around that time period. So pretty young, but um, definitely was a wonderful ruler that did a lot of good, I think, or tried to in her reign. Um, How she's been depicted in the media. So obviously it's less than Cleopatra. And (laughs) uh, I think the, like, benefit of being less known is also that you're not as objectified. tarnished? Yeah. Yeah. And the good thing about her is that I think something that's super notable is that the people really loved her. I feel like... They did a whole, so in the Hagia Sophia, I think it's the church that they're in, there's a whole mosaic of Justinian with his attendants, and then there's a whole mosaic of Theodora with her attendants. So they're not even together. They're in, like, separate areas of the mosaic, but, like, showing Uh that they are, like, notable rulers ordained by God to rule over the empire. Wow. So I think they're people really did appreciate them at least for as far as history can tell because she's written of extremely highly her quotes were saved her notable moments were kept treasured and intact and that's something Uh that a lot of the times doesn't happen for female Uh rulers so i think it's just really incredible that that was able to happen that like 
they were kind to her. <laughs> yeah, um, that is cool. Yeah, some cool things. Uh, we've talked about this before, the dinner party thing by Judy Chicago. Mm-hmm. So there's an, yes. actually a place setting for Empress Theodora uh, oh, that in is that cool. art piece. Yeah. And then there's been a couple of like films and books. There's a theater like drama play called Theodora. Um, and some of the coolest things that I think have come from her like influence and just like the Byzantine Empire in general is there was a Dolce and Gabbana 2013 collection that was inspired entirely by the Hagia Sophia Hagia Sophia mosaics and oh. like the colors of the Byzantine Empire and it's awesome <laughs> it's like Ooh, <laughs> it's a really cool so um yeah, I mean, like, she definitely doesn't have as much media representation as some of the others we're talking about, but I think it's really cool that, like, the media of her time period, and therefore ours, has been kinder to her than a lot of other people got. This is Queen Mary the First, or Trudor, which is also known as Bloody Mary. Ooh. So she, you know, M- Mary the First, also known as Mary Trudor, and as Bloody Mary by her Protestant opponents, she was Queen of England and Ireland from July 1553 until her death in 1558. So only five years. Um, so she is best known for her very rigorous attempt to reverse the English Reformation, which had begun during the reign of her father, Henry VIII. So she was very Catholic and wanted England to stay that way. Mm-hmm. Something that I thought was interesting is, she, interesting is she was the very first woman to claim the English crown since Empress Matilda in the 12th century, which I actually don't know who Empress Matilda is. So that. Yeah. Like now I want to learn about Empress Matilda. <laughs> There's something <laughs> funny where I found an article that was like, does Queen Bloody Mary, like, does she really deserve the, this reputation? But, <laughs> and it provided these stats that I was like, eh. So during her five-year reign, Mary had over 300 religious dissenters burned at the stake in what are now known as the Marian persecutions. It is a st- statistic which seems barbaric, but her own father, Henry VIII, executed 81 people for hearsay, and her half-sister, Elizabeth I, also executed scores of people for their faith. So why is it Mary's name linked with religious yeah. persecution? But I'm like, there's a pretty big difference between 381. So like, True. and also, I don't know how long their reigns were. And 300 people in five years just seems like a <laughs> lot of people. I mean, so, however, it does seem like her family taught her that executing people is not a bad thing. Though. Exactly. So. And so that's what they did bring up. It's yeah. like, you know, like, actually, that was the practice at the time that if someone was going to be executed for hearsay, it was going to be burned at the stake so it's not like she invented this in any means like she watched her father do it I don't know exactly how much her sister did it for Mm. I don't think as much as Mary you know it doesn't sound like it so I just thought that was funny that was like maybe there's a point there but 300 is greater than 81 so definitely um, <laughs> this is random, but is like the poem, yeah. like Mary, Mary, quite contrary. How does your garden grow? Is that about her? Oh, I don't know. Oh, okay. Let's Google it. No proof has been found that the Rhine was known before the 18th century while Mary 
of England and Mary Queen of Scots were contemporaries in the 16th century. So I think people think that it has something to do with that. Maybe it's been identified because how does your garden grow could refer to her lack of heirs that she had. Oh, um, they were making a naughty limerick about her not being able to have kids. Yeah, mm. maybe. Or people think that it was relating to Mary Queen of Scots referring to her reign over her realm, silver bells, referring to Catholic cathedral bells, insinuating that her husband was not faithful to her oh. and pretty maids all in a row, referring to her ladies in a waiting. Okay. So I think people think it is either Bloody Mary or the Mary Queen of Scots because yeah. there's no like reason, like n- it doesn't show up anything before that. Okay. That makes sense. I just wondered when you said Mary, I was like, Mary, Mary No, I didn't even contrary. think of that, but that's an <laughs> interesting point. A quote, though, I did appreciate from the article is that female leaders tend to either be glorified, such as Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth of England, or vilified, which is most definitely the case for Mary of England. And so I think what the the argument that the article really was trying to make is like, maybe there's a middle ground here where Elizabeth wasn't the savior to England and Queen Mary maybe actually did some good things. Um, Her reign, as they mentioned, consisted much more than the persecutions of prom of Protestants in a world dominated by men. She was the first female ruler to play the roles of both king and queen, which I thought were really interesting, was a really interesting point. And, you know, the article kind of went on to give context of because of her, like, I think England was able to be like completely separated from Spain. And so like there were significant things that she was able to help with. Mm -hmm. What I thought was so interesting about seeing how Queen Mary was, has been depicted in the arts is how much the arts really pushed forward her reputation. And so the first thing was someone writing about her. And I, I read something that said, if one person can be held responsible for Mary's reputation, it is the Protestant martyrologist, John Fox and his best-selling work, the Acts and Monuments, better known as Fox's Book of Martyrs, gave a very detailed account of each and every martyr who died for his or her faith under the Catholic Church. And that was first published in 1563 and went through four editions in Fox's lifetime alone, which just like shows how popular it was at the time. Man. So his work covered the early Christian martyrs, the medieval Inquisition, and the suppressed Lollard hearsay, but it was the persecutions under Mary that got and still received the most attention. So it's not like that book was, you know, just about Queen Mary and like all of her executions. It was about a lot of different things. But the reason why that that got so much attention was due to some custom made, highly detailed woodcuts that were depicting the gruesome torture and like burning of the Protestant martyrs that were surrounded in flames. Um, And then in the first 1563 edition, 30 out of the 57 illustrations depict executions under Mary's reign. So, I mean, it's like, I don't want to be like, ugh, poor woman. Like, she obviously did a very bad thing here by, you know, persecuting people for their religion. But like, it's just almost interesting how it's like it was the arts, really, that pushed forward this reputation. 
So it was first published five years after her death, by the way. And oh, another thing about it is that the second edition was ordered to be installed in every cathedral church and church officials were told to place copies in their houses for the use of servants and visitors. And by the end of the 17th century, Fox's work tended to be abbreviated to include only the most sensational episodes of torture and death. So the graphic accounts of pious Protestant martyrs submissively going to their painful ends at the hand of a tyrant kind of became like folklore of the English Reformation. So like I said, like I don't want to be like poor woman and her reputation. Like sure, people are complicated and she did do some good things, but she killed a lot of people and that's not great. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's very bad. But it's like, it, I don't want to say cool, but like it kind of is cool how it's like somebody writing about it that is really what pushed forward her reputation. Um, and then as far as like how she's depicted like herself in portraits, it's very often that she's depicted as a very stern and hostile fe- figure. Something also that's like kind of intertwined with the her bloody reputation is the death of Lady Jane Grey, who is also known as the Nine Day Queen. And I don't really know exactly what happened, but it says that she was kind of used as a pawn by her father-in-law, John Dudley, who was the Duke of Northumberland, to try to usurp the throne. So I think that she was like literally only queen for like nine days or for a period of time as like someone's attempt to take over the throne. But then Queen Mary, you know, Mm -hmm. became the actual queen. And Lady Jane Grey ended up dying. But I guess it says that Mary seems to have been really reluctant to condemn her younger cousin too harshly. So to the point that she like postponed her execution and even contemplated giving her the royal pardon. But basically it was kind of like as long as she was alive, it would remain a threat to Mary's crown and to her life. So she eventually consented to her execution, which was done on October of 1554. This like became like a very popular thing to depict in art was like this her execution execution. man Mm -hmm. and and in many ways it says that this death tarnished mary's reign and it kind of became like a symbol of her cruelty and a lot of the portraits now depict lady jane gray as this helpless young woman who suffered at the hands of bloody mary Um, mary is very often wearing a red dress pretty much just reminding the viewer of her name and it's like and always not always she's mostly represented as the villain like no matter what in these in those paintings and kind of like seen as like just like the stern mean woman in the corner just like watching you know someone die and this is like something interesting like no matter how hard scholars or historians have worked to debunk the myths around mary's unfitness to rule the perception of mary even when portrayed as a beautiful woman has constantly been imbued with the color red a state on her image that seems impossible to clean or remove man so that's just another thing like if you just look through pictures of mary queen mary it, it like if it's not her dress it's the, what's surrounding her it's always red which is really you know like i said it just shows her reputation and how she was viewed man so like i said it's like i don't want to hear to be like ah, oh, poor bloody mary but also you know it's like like they said it's like well you know queen elizabeth also you know would do some form of political persecution as well so it's not that queen elizabeth is the hero and queen mary is the villain mm-hmm. like maybe they both did things wrong yeah i guess is what they're trying to point it's out. kind of interesting though that like 
Mary has kind of turned into this like urban legend. Yeah, well, because I was like, is that where you get like the yeah Bloody Mary? If you like, say it like three times in, in the, the bathroom, mirror. yeah, or whatever, it's gotta be. But like, mm-hmm. that's so interesting that that's persisted throughout time. Yeah. In that way, when like, why are we still scaring children about this queen who's been dead forever? <laughs> like, what? I have a confession: if the lights turn off in the bathroom ever while I'm washing my hands, I immediately panic and turn off the water. I can't. I'm like, I it freaks me out Same, because I got told as a child that she would appear in the mirror and like talk to yes. me, and I was like, thank. Okay, I'm glad I'm not the only one no, who's still horrified right. at the concept. I won't go in the bathroom with the lights off. I'm no, because I'm ridiculous. And if I, yeah, I will never ever wash my hands in the dark because I'm. I think I heard that it like if you're the water was running and you said Bloody Mary in the mirror three mm-hmm. times, she would appear. And mm-mm, nope, I'm not taking my chances. I just think it's nuts because like how many kings beheaded people that's you know what and killed people and yet like no she definitely was in the wrong like i think we're all aware of that like she's definitely like not right but like why did she become the urban legend that we base all of our childhood nightmares on (laughs) like Like, something to consider yeah so no that's interesting and yeah that's just oh wow and like i said i think it's like cool how it was art Mm -hmm. in a way that perpetuated this so much oh i think that's the case for definitely all of them Ooh. okay well kind of significant yeah now that we've talked about summoning demons let's talk about the bible (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) so the next one i want to talk about is queen esther um oh yeah yeah she's obviously from the book of esther in the old testament um, she was a queen of the Persian Empire. Um, right off the bat, we'll say that we don't we don't know if the story of Esther is real, okay, or not. Historians have argued about it forever because they think that it could be like a parable to like kind of explain the story of whatever. But um, other people actually have found historical records that kind of match a little bit. The name of the king in the Book of Esther is Asaris, but it's referring to Xerxes the first, who was uh, emperor of. Persia and then a lot of people have argued that Persian kings didn't marry outside of the seven Persian noble families so why would Mm -hmm. he marry a Jewish girl however in the historical records Xerxes queen was named Amistris and she didn't descend from any of those families so that kind of conflicts that idea and I mean, mm-hmm. the idea of her not descending from the families kind of matches up with the story of Esther. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. So it kind of is just interesting. And then um, they also have found records that there was a Persian official named Marduka during King Xerxes' early reign. And Marduka is literally identical to the name Mordecai in like language. Oh, and that was yeah. her cousin. Uh-huh. So it just. So just saying, like, we don't know for certain that this is actually real. But, I mean, for the most part, the Bible was used as a historical record. So it could be. Um, It could be real. Yes. Yeah. So let's talk about the story of Esther. 
Um, so she was born with the Jewish name of Hadassah, which means Myrtle, but as was common at the time, she also took on the Persian name Esther, which means star. And Esther was actually an orphan from the tribe of Benjamin, and so she was taken in by her cousin Mordecai after her parents' death. Um, this was during a time period when, like, the Jews had been driven out of Judah, and so they were living, like, among a bunch of different areas and everything it was called the mm -hmm. jewish diaspora and um everyone was living away from judah so however then they were given the right to return but because they were having like freedom of religion in persia for the most part a lot of them stayed um however even though there was freedom to exercise their religion there was a lot of anti-semitism and racism which comes up in the story mm. itself and so yeah. it wasn't without persecution but the king did allow them to worship however they wanted to, and so a lot of people stayed and were happy with their lives there. Um, in the narrative of the story, you have the king, Xerxes, who is looking for a new wife after his queen, Vashti, refused to obey him. And I actually found a ton of narratives talking about how Vashti is like this unsung feminist hero because a lot of people huh. think that her husband was probably requesting her to come and dance naked in front of his court and she told him no. <laughs> and then he like literally banished her and probably killed her and then found a new wife. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Obviously, the Bible doesn't go into that part. Literally, all it says in the scriptures is that he summoned her to come because he wanted everyone to see how beautiful she was. And she basically uh -huh. told him she was too busy. So I don't know. Uh, if you want to read more about Vashti, feel free. There was actually a lot. Um, then <laughs> this is the part that's like, it's in the scriptures. I read the book of Esther today. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually I love that. It's actually kind of disgusting when you look at the story. Basically what happened is they like chose all the most beautiful women in the kingdom and had them come forward and go through beauty treatments for like 6 months and then they would go and like like present themselves to the king and then he would like pick one to be his queen. I feel like I watched a video about that like when I was a kid, you know, like the Bible mm -hmm. videos. And now I'm just, like, realizing, like, that's bizarre. Why did I think that was, yeah. like, a, oh, yeah, of course, this one would. The part that's kind of glazed over is that they, like, got all these beauty treatments and spent those six months in his harem with, like, concubines uh -huh. and stuff. And the ones that weren't picked as queen would be his concubines. So he probably slept with, like, tons of, like, these little virgin girls who were stolen away from their families before he picked esther so kind of gross actually if you think about it yeah <laughs> but i mean she was chosen as queen which i guess is cool she was probably really young and like stolen away from the only family she's known and then thrown in this like harem of a bunch of concubine women and like given beauty treatments for six months before she has to go like present herself to the king and hope he picks her like i yeah. don't know i uh, gosh feminism did not exist um, however, we needed feminism. <laughs> yeah. What makes her story really cool and what makes her a notable person is obviously um, what happened after she was chosen as queen. The king's chief advisor, Haman, 
um, really, really hated Mordecai, and he also just hated Jews. He was, like, so racist. And so kind of like by tricking the king, he got permission from the king to have all of the Jews in the kingdom killed. This makes the king sound like an idiot, but the way he phrased it was that um, the scriptures say that they'll worship no one above God. And so he was like, they won't obey you if their God tells them not to. Completely mm-hmm. forgetting that there's plenty of scriptures, even at the time, that said, like, you obey your governmental leaders or whatever, you know, like that God uh-huh. ordains kings and queens to rule at different time periods. Anyway, there's a bunch of stuff about it. So he says that all of the Jews are going to be killed. And um, Esther's cousin Mordecai comes to her and tells her, like, hey, the king's going to kill all of our people. And um, because of Esther's name, no one knew she was a Jew. Like I said, it wasn't like a great time to be Jewish. So she wasn't necessarily hiding it. But um, a lot of people have actually criticized the fact that there's no proof that she was like a practicing Jew. So she may not have even Mm. have been that like religious of a person. And then her cousin comes forward and is like, hey, you've got to go to the king and tell him not to kill everyone or else all of us are going to die and um to go to the king without his permission so even though she was his wife if he didn't call upon her to come and visit him he could kill her if she went to him without his permission because yeah because you know toxic time period um and so yeah so to go to him and to ask for this was literally basically sentencing herself to death and she even said that she was like if i go i'll die and he was like if you don't go we'll all die so (laughs) she does (laughs) yeah she tells him to have all of the jews and all of their friends and family and everything fast for three days and pray and then she would go to the king and ask for his mercy and um, she does. She goes to the king. She invites him and his um, evil servant Haman to a feast. And then um, through the course of all that ends up telling the king that Haman has threatened her life. And when Haman's like, what do you mean? And then she reveals that she's Jewish and that by sentencing all of the Jews to death, he's sentencing her as well as his trusted mm. servant Mordecai to death as well. The king is shocked reverses it and they hang Haman and he's died he's killed along with um all of their enemies so obviously (laughs) there's a lot of like interesting connections in the story that's so intriguing to me that like even through reading all of this I was like what the heck this is one of the only stories that's like really regarded and celebrated in both Jewish religion and Christian which is really uh-huh. interesting. It overlaps between yeah. the two, um, which is really cool, actually, that, like, there's that connection there that, like, all of us who grew up Jewish or Christian have pretty much heard this story and, like, find some connection to it in some way. Um, yeah. The Jews actually have an annual feast called the Feast of Purim that's in memory of Esther's deliverance of their people and her bravery to go before the king. And they do like a whole uh-huh. festival for her and read the book of Esther every year, which I think is really cool. There's also a lot of criticism against Esther. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism against it not having God as a character within the book. 
Like a God doesn't appear at any point to anyone. Like, cause it's in the Bible. And so they're like, yeah. So they're like, is it even no religious? God? Yeah. And so a lot of people were actually arguing to leave it out when the Bible was being translated and compiled. So it's actually interesting. super interesting that it stayed in regardless of that. I kind of like, <laughs> I get what they're saying, but at the same time, I kind of like it because I think a lot of the times um, it's hard when you read the Bible to picture how it fits into your life because God doesn't just show up and tell you what to do. <laughs> but yeah. with this one, it was like fasting and prayer. And then she just kind of did what she felt was best. And then like, you know, so I th- like it's like an actual human having to do like a courageous thing on its own. And then the consequences of that courageous. Thing. Yes, like, exactly. So I feel like it's a very its like modern story of faith which yeah. I think is really uh-huh. cool. Um, also, apparently Esther gets a lot of criticism because she didn't want to go to the king at first because she was afraid to die. And people have been like, I mean, oh, well, if she was more righteous, then she wouldn't be afraid. And I was like, excuse oh, me. <laughs> is there a single human on this earth that's like, okay, I'll go die. Okay, yeah. I was like, wow, how critical. And it actually <laughs> brings a lot of like power into the story for me because I feel like, I found this quote that said, like, fear is a normal response, but how a person responds to fear determines their character. Would Esther allow her fear to overcome and paralyze her from taking action, or would she decide to act contrary to her feelings and do what she knew had to be done? Yeah, I love that. Yeah, there's also, like, some really wonderful quoted scriptures. Um, Esther 4.14, her cousin Mordecai says, Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? And I've seen a lot of people quote that, like the idea of like you've come for such a time as this. I think a lot of people for love like a, the idea of like, like you're here yeah, now for a reason. That there's like a purpose you fulfill within each situation you're put in. Yeah. So I think that it's a very beautiful story and um, it's definitely <laughs> then retold and depicted millions of times. I feel like it's one of the most well-known religious stories there are, especially because mm-hmm. it's one of the only ones of a female by name, once again. In, in the Bible, <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's only two books, I think, in the Old Testament that are given the name of a woman, and that is Esther and Ruth. So yeah, very like notable um, that she has a book in the Bible. Um, yeah. There's like lots of historical fiction books about her there's been multiple different movies um she's been painted tons and tons and tons of times uh there's actually there was another article that said she served as the muse to many artists throughout history as a symbol of the ideal woman both physically and morally because the king literally said she was the most beautiful woman in the entire kingdom and then on top of that, then she goes and saves her people. And so they kind of have created her into like this, like, bold. perfect character of, like, female virtue and beauty. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, makes sense. Um, Artemisia Gentowski has actually painted her, um, as well as a ton of other artists, including Michelangelo, Tintoretto, Rembrandt, um, obviously, lots and lots so it's just kind of interesting to see how she's been depicted as well and like that criticism and that symbolism of her as like a female that continues throughout time just 
yeah, really, really interesting. We're going to take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists. Okay, so I have just found a account called The Hippie Shake. The Hippie Shake. And they are creating and curating clothing that you will treasure forever. It is slow fashion. It's UK-based, but they do ship worldwide, by the way. Um, okay, listen. I stumbled on this Instagram account, and I... Oh, my gosh. Am I obsessed <laughs> with this? I clicked on their website, and everything is up for... Well, a lot of things are up for pre-order, and I am wow (laughs) like if this could be my closet i think everything in my life would be okay plus the photos like a perfect like i think i like need this butterfly dress i think you do too (laughs) look at how amazing this is (laughs) so um like you know not so much of our usual art but hey what they are curating and putting together here I would absolutely consider art and, you know, it's slow fashion and which was something we definitely support. Yes, 100%. And I just, wow, looking through this website is bringing me just an incredible amount of joy. So I would almost like prescribe this to every single one of you as something to go check out agreed even just the photography yeah the photography is so incredible sometimes i think like people forget how much work goes into like curating a instagram feed oh try (laughs) i marvel that you do hours i am not kidding oh my gosh i'm just glad we have like designated content because i don't know how people do it when it's just like their life you know like my life does not look that beautiful um Trying to find pictures just for my own Instagram, a nightmare. Like, yeah. I hate it for, like, my music Instagram. Because I'm like, I have to post, but I'm like, can I post another selfie? <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's, like, so hard. But for real, this account, like, I am going to find something and purchase it so that I can wear it on stage. Like, this is just true. This is amazing. That is so great. So, yeah, have to shout them out again. It's The Hippie Shake. And I am completely obsessed with it cool okay so it is amanda.lynn.hales amandalyn collage art she does oracle decks and prints and it is literally it actually kind of matches what you were showing the clothing kind of like 70s like spiritualism vibes okay love yeah it. i just love collage art it oh, takes a certain level of just like artistic skill and I'm I constantly I impressed. Understand. So yeah, I don't know exactly what an oracle deck is, but she does them. Yeah, yeah I'm not but I like the collage art that she posts. <laughs> yeah, looking through her account, it's beautiful. Anyway, so yeah, check her out. I don't even know how to describe it. How would you explain this? Like mystical and like yeah, but there's like galaxies and like rainbows yeah. and. But then there's like old 19th century pictures of women in, as well. You just have to go look at it. Sometimes that's hard with a podcast. Like we're talking about art and it's like. It's pretty, I promise. <laughs> like I don't know how to explain to you all. So just go to our Instagram. <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> oh, also a fun little reminder while we're here in this little break in between episodes. Yes. Um, if between episodes in the middle of our episode. It's is. Fun. <laughs> 
we um, have a book list. Yes. That um, is constantly evolving, and we have affiliate links for all of them. And especially for this episode, I think I found a book for every single person. Yeah, I'll make sure to link them all. Yeah, so we'll register, like register. We'll link all of those for all of you. So if you want to read more about these queens, then you can. These literal queens. I know. <laughs> so you're like these total yeah. queens. It sounds weird because it's like a queen, and it's like, but, but she but, actually but was. A queen. Yes. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, um, check that out, and if you have any artists that we should check out, like please send Let those over as well. Yes. All right, now back to the show. My last one is Catherine the Great of Russia, and she was actually born Princess Sophia Augusta. Frederica, I believe. Okay. <laughs> um, on May 2nd, 1729 in Prussia, which is now like the modern day Northwest Poland. And she married the heir to the Russian throne, Charles Peter Ulrich in St. Petersburg, Russia at the age of 16. So very young. Um, and to prepare for her new royal life in Russia, she converted to the Ro- Russian Orthodox Church. She changed her name and she learned to speak Russian. And at the time, Russia was ruled by Peter's aunt Elizabeth and Peter was heir to the throne. Um, their arranged marriage was apparently instantly unhappy. <laughs> and um, they both had many affairs with other lovers and continue to do so. Fun fact, one of the reasons why we do know so much about Catherine's experiences and feelings during her life is because she wrote a lot about her own life. And there's like so many extensive and detailed memoirs that she left behind. Apparently, her writing described Peter variously as a drunkard, good for nothing, and an idiot. (laughs) So she really did not like her husband. In 1762, when the couple had been married for 18 years, so a long time. In January of that year, Peter became emperor after the death of the Empress Elizabeth. But then there was kind of like a series of military missteps that really hurt his reputation throughout Europe and pretty much cemented his unpopularity in Russia. And so Catherine had a lot of alliances that she pretty much had worked up to betray like that they felt very betrayed by Peter's decisions. So basically, Peter just managed to make everyone upset about him. And so then rumors started circulating that Peter was planning to get rid of Catherine. And so then momentum pretty much quickly gathered around Catherine. Ha- I don't know if it's having a coup or doing a coup. Oh, okay. That would basically force him to remove himself from the throne and put her as a ruler. So six months into Peter's reign in June, 1762, Catherine launched her coup with the support of public opinion, the aristocratic class and the military and was proclaimed empress by the Russian church. That same day, Peter was forced to abdicate. And then eight days later, he was assassinated. We don't really know how he died, but it's of course likely to have been at the hand of one of her supporters. So she just completely took over the throne and thought her husband was an idiot. And it seems like other people thought so, too. So (laughs) good for her. (laughs) I know. As for artistic 
like depictions of her. There have been, first off, a lot of movies about Catherine the Great, like stars such as like Marlene Dietrich to Catherine Zeta-Jones, and then most recently, Ella Fanning. Um, And then even there was a Broadway stage a broadway show called Catherine was great that was done in 1943 wow have you seen the great on hulu uh i feel like i've heard of it but no i haven't i i actually never finished season one i'm doing this really awesome thing lately where like i watched like four or five episodes of a season and i'm like wow i really like this show and then i never finish it so I don't know what's going on. But anyways, so that's what happened. I watched about four or five episodes of it and I was like, wow, I really like this show, but I never finished it. But I, I would I would recommend it. But um, The Great, it's meant to kind of be a more humorous look at it. Mm. And this is a, from an article, though, about it. I really liked this quote that said, I think the title card reads an, reads an occasionally true story. And and yet it was important to me that there were tent poles of things that were true, like her being a kid who didn't speak the language, marrying the wrong man and responding to that by deciding to change the country, which is exactly like what she kind of wanted to do. She was more of like a enlightened thinker, but yet a lot of people have said that it's like funny how there are so many contradictions in her life where it's like she was so enlightened and like wanted to make the country better, but like also you know, maybe wasn't the best at it. There's also like her rivals like started a rumor that she had sex with a horse to try and like get people to not like her and pretty much just paint her as a whore. Yeah. So I there's this one quote that says it seemed like her life had been reduced to a salacious headline about having sex with a horse yet she'd done an enormous amount of amazing things had been a kid who'd come to a country that wasn't her own and taken it over which is like objectively amazing yeah something that i do want to focus though about her like i said there's been so many movies and tv shows that have been done about her and it's like a very interesting story to do it but something that she did and there's a book called The Empress of Art, Catherine the Great, and the Transformation of Russia. That basically, like, she was an art connoisseur, I guess is the word. So at the start of her reign, Russia was pretty much seen as like a largely unsophisticated backwater place. And she wanted to bring herself and Russia like a very prestigious look. So she brought in a lot of galleries full of like Rubens and Rambrots and Van Dykes into the country. And over 30 years, over like over the span of 30 years she secured some of the top art connoisseurs across Europe which was like apparently you know obviously impressive but also like pretty controversial just because you know like she was all about like helping the people and enlightenment but yet yeah, was like spending so much money on like art yeah. and like doing it to other countries and not focusing on Russian art mm. but through this art collection and by building beautiful neoclassical palaces she really helped change Russia's image um, and then along with her military conquest that put Russia on the map as a cultural center and a military powerhouse Catherine's art collection in these palaces didn't help the Russian people so she was cr- and like I said she was criticized for not supporting Russian artists and for focusing on Western art she didn't really think much of Russian art or Russian art architects with just a few exceptions but she left her adopted country with an enormous cultural legacy including the hermitage one of the beloved museums in the world today and saint petersburg a beautiful and elegant city yeah. and that is to her credit so i didn't realize that but i think like i said she made it very much a point of like okay i want to like 
change the way Russia is perceived on the world. And I think she was very smart to know that like by creating like almost like a culture and creating beauty, you know, around you is like something that people would want to see and emphasizing on the art like I think she was very smart to realize that that would do that yeah so you know it's not exactly how she was depicted in art but I do think it's really cool how she was able to use art and how that was such a significant part of her reign and what she was able to accomplish as like empress Mm -hmm. of Russia oh that's impressive so yeah that's what I have about Catherine the Great last but definitely not least is (laughs) Marie Antoinette I have to say, I feel like she fits this topic so perfectly. Yes. <laughs> that it's almost tragic. In fact, it is tragic. So her entire story just makes me mad. So uh, Marie Antoinette, as many of you probably know, was the queen of France. The last one before the French Revolution. Very much so the very last one before <laughs> revolution um i actually listened to a podcast episode it's a podcast called you were wrong about and i want to check that out yeah and they did a whole episode on marie antoinette and i felt like it was very well researched and very well done so i would highly recommend it and it wasn't very long and they had a lot of good commentary about all of it Uh, they do a couple of different things like oj simpson trial all sorts of stuff, human trafficking, and just kind of talk about the different conceptions of it all. Not conceptions. What is it? Different, I don't know, ideas of it all and how people... Like controversies? Yeah, and how people are, like, right or wrong about different things that they assume. So, okay, we'll go into her history first. And then we'll talk. <laughs> cool. So, Marie Antoinette was born Marie Antonia Josepha Johanna on November 2nd, 1755, And she was actually born in Austria, that's her home country, to Empress Maria Theresa and Emperor Francis I. Um, Okay. It's really interesting. She was, like, the youngest of, like, 15 kids, I think. Like, they had quite a few, quite a few. They had a lot of kids. (laughs) Okay. And um, as was common with royalty during that time period, um, a lot of marriages would be decided really, really early and alliances and everything. However, because Marie Antoinette was so young, she actually grew up kind of them not really expecting her to make a marriage that would end up ruling a country. So her education was basically focused on like normal court type things like nothing really of substance at all because she had so many older sisters they didn't expect her to ever have to be in a position of like a political leader however a disease swept through and um, one of her sisters ended up dying and so an alliance they had made with a different country ended up going to a different sister and then that pushed Marie Antoinette into the position of ended up being the Dauphine of France and the future queen. Also, before she ended up going to France, they had been in war and like with each other for a really, really long time. So France hated Austria and Austria hated France. And then they're sending oh. their 14, yes, I said 14 year old daughter <laughs> to go marry this like 15 or 16 year old kid. 
and they're going to rule a country in a couple of years, apparently, because that was normal. Um, Maybe that's why so much horrible things happen because yeah. the world was literally being run by teenagers <laughs> they just put children in charge like yeah see what happens anyway she became the dauphine of france in may of 1770 and they got married um her and louis the heir apparent to the french throne and then um four years later she ended up becoming queen so she was 18 18 or 19 when she became the queen yeah. of france Obviously, there was a lot that happened. And another great resource that I highly, highly recommend is the 2006 film Marie Antoinette directed by Sofia Coppola, starring Kirsten Dunst. Mm. It's Mm -hmm. so good, and it's actually way more historically accurate than a lot of people give it credit for. Um, Yes, like, the fashion's not, like, 100%. They basically took the idea of Marie Antoinette and mixed it with, like, a 90s girl film. So there's, like, rock music and converse and stuff. But the actual, like, way they describe what was happening in the French courts and the country... It's more the French courts, not so much the country at that time, is exactly what it was like. The king before Louis had taken everyone and moved them out to this, like, reformed hunting lodge that is now Versailles. And it was basically just this giant reality TV show, like, house (laughs) with all of the courtesans and all of the important people, like, all living together in this, like... I am, like, it's like the content house (laughs) in L.A. with all the YouTubers and TikTokers. Yes, and, like, everyone there was, like, rich and powerful and wealthy and gossipy and... They just all lived there in this little bubble, regardless of what was happening outside. So (laughs) amazing. Like right off the bat, there were really, really horrible rumors about Marie Antoinette. And so kind of her media depiction, even how we have it today, is like so entwined with how she was viewed from the very beginning. Because like, I mean, compared to a lot of these others, like 1755, it wasn't that long ago. Like, yes, it was a long time Mm -hmm. ago, but like... I mean, compared to 65 BC, like AD, it's yeah. it's not as long ago. Um, and so right off the bat, they were mad because she was Austrian. And notably, when you go into a country and leave your home country, they like took her to this like tent in the middle of the woods and made her strip down and leave everything that was Austrian behind. And then she was dressed in French fashion and given French animals as pets and, like, took and taken to the French kingdom where she wasn't allowed to be Austrian at all anymore. Um, A lot of people assumed she was a spy. A lot of people were just mad that she was Austrian at all um, because the French hatred for Austria just ran so deep. So they hated her right off the bat, the whole public, because it was considered patriotic, to hate Marie Antoinette and that's kind of a theme mm. that continued that you were more French if you hated her it continued just constantly um, there were rumors about her all the time she had friends and would like throw parties with a lot of the other like women of the court and so then there were rumors that she was a lesbian her and her husband couldn't have sex for a really long time because of some like medical complications that he had mm. there's like two stories of it either he didn't know how to have sex <laughs> because they were children or he had like some medical complications that prevented him from but they didn't actually like 
consummate their marriage for years and years and years into their marriage. And so her mother, like, wrote her horrible, like, scathing letters about, like, what are you doing wrong? Why can't you please your husband? Like, you're a failure mm-hmm. as a woman. Because literally oh my God. the only role that she was, like, expected to fulfill is, like, go be a good like court person like make friends and be nice to everyone and have babies that's it that was all that was expected of women at that time um and so obviously they made a bunch of jokes about that and they were like mean to him about it but like it definitely fell on her like the brunt of it all because she Mm -hmm. was failing um, because she wasn't producing an heir however they were able to figure it out and she ended up having a little girl first and then some other kids later and the hard part with Marie Antoinette is I feel like a lot of the criticism for her is valid but also it wasn't her fault (laughs) and I'm gonna try to explain that (laughs) hopefully it makes sense okay so she had like a little village that she set up where she would like pretend to be a peasant So they would, like, Mm -hmm. go gather eggs and, like, have little animals and stuff. And she spent a lot of time there with her kids. And that's received a lot of criticism. However, that was an extremely normal thing at that time that, like, a lot of wealthy people did. Really? Yeah. Because they liked the aesthetic of, like, being poor. But, like, (laughs) not actually being poor. I feel like people do that now, though, still, which is interesting exactly it was kind of like cottage core for royalty mm-hmm. um so she got a ton of criticism for that but then on the flip side she was dressing in more like peasant fabrics at that time like a lot more muslim and cotton and then the whole fabric industry got mad at her because then they're like well no one's gonna buy our expensive fabrics because you're dressing in poor people clothes oh. so it was like this double-sided thing where it's like she's dressing more like the regular person and then she gets criticized because she's not buying the fancy materials that'll help stimulate the French economy, you know? So yeah, it's just like every single thing she did, people were mad about. Like everything that she did, people were mad about. There's also this huge scandal of like the diamond necklace incident. What happened is there was this really, really ostentatious, ridiculously expensive diamond necklace that the king before Louis had like commissioned for his mistress. And he commissioned it, and then he died, and the mistress was banished, obviously. She had no grand to stand on without him there. So then these jewelers came to Marie Antoinette, and they were like, hey, will you buy this necklace? Um, Because we... Like, we made it for this other lady, and you're the only one who's wealthy enough to buy it. And so we're, you know, we're suffering because we paid all this money to make this necklace, and we don't have anyone to purchase it anymore she didn't like (laughs) the mistress of the king before she really hated her and also at that time like france had been starting to get criticism for their spending and so she was like oh no that like i don't need it and that's just a lot of money to spend like i think our money should be better spent elsewhere and then Mm. they got mad at her for not buying the necklace because they were like oh but you should buy it so it's like she got they got mad at her for spending money and then got mad at her for not spending money and yeah and then uh this whole like true crime story basically where someone pretended to be marie antoinette and like flirted with this other guy over letters and convinced him to buy the necklace for them and then like 
hired a prostitute to pretend to be Marie Antoinette and like get the necklace and then they ran away and then he was left expecting Marie Antoinette to pay him back for this necklace that he had gotten for her thinking that they were like in this relationship when (laughs) in reality it wasn't her at all and so she literally did absolutely nothing wrong in that situation at all Marie Antoinette had nothing to do with any of it she didn't do anything wrong and yet they had to do this whole court thing and then there were jokes about how he confused a prostitute for the queen and what does that say about the queen and Mm. (laughs) like all of this stuff when in reality she she didn't do anything wrong at all. And yet, like, she got yeah. blamed for this whole, like, theft of the diamond necklace, basically. Um, and that just continued. Like, France didn't have enough money because they were helping out us with our revolution. Mm-hmm. And Louis wasn't doing a very good job of, like, ruling the country. But instead of blaming him or, like, the millions of advisors that I'm sure he had that were giving him advice, they all blamed her. They just, it all landed on Marie Antoinette. And I think the, like, antithesis of all of this is the let them eat cake quote. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. is 100% false. She never said oh. that. She never said anything like that. However, it is, like... The podcast said it's the most effective propaganda of all time because we still quote it today. It's like lasted centuries and she never said it. Never. Interesting. Um, So what had happened is there was like a philosopher a couple of years before Marie Antoinette was even born. Or if she was born, she was like a child living in Austria still. And he made like a little funny story about how like he met a princess once who, when she was told that the peasants had no bread, she responded, let them eat cake, and was just kind of making this little, like, allegory of, like, how out of touch rich people are, Mm -hmm. which, like, accurate. But (laughs) it had nothing to do with Marie Antoinette. We don't even know if that was a true thing. So people, like, put that on Marie Antoinette of, like, oh, this is how we feel like she is, but it's not like she ever actually said that. So what happened is when the newspapers or whatever, the tabloids, basically, of... French court were talking about how nobody had any food to eat they kind of adopted that story and basically quoted Marie Antoinette as saying and the original quote that they actually used for her was let them eat brioche which is like really really fancy bread it got misquoted so often that that's what everyone let them eat cake yeah and everyone still to this day thinks that that's something that she said when she didn't weird yeah Yeah. so I think the hard part with Marie Antoinette is that like she did not have any political expectations she was not in charge of ruling the country she was not in charge Mm -hmm. of the budgetary needs she was not she had no say over anything that happened and yes was she an out of touch rich person of course but is that her fault no no yeah (laughs) like it's not her fault at all and she actually tried the best she could to like I don't think she was a bad person at all. She loved her kids, which is something that was really rare for rich women at that time. A lot of people would just hand them off to the nursemaids and then be like, oh, whatever. But she actually, like, raised her children and, like, spent a lot of time with them, loved them dearly. She also would, like, go out into the town and, like, find orphans and, like, pay for their education and everything. So it was, like, wealthy, like... You know, it wasn't great, but it like, wasn't great. But she was like trying. But that was like her idea of helping because she didn't have any say in anything that was happening. She was a woman 
in 17th century France. She didn't have any yeah. say in any of it. Um, the saddest part of all of, us, of all of it is that the entire thing got blamed on her. Um, she was basically the scapegoat for the French Revolution. And I'm not saying the French Revolution was in the wrong. I don't think they were. However, mm-hmm. we got off easy when it came to revolutions. That was like yeah. the bloodiest, most horrible, horrific revolution. It disgusting, honestly, what happened. And I don't think really anyone looks super good in it because the government doesn't look good and the people don't necessarily look good either. They actually like tortured one of her friends and then put her head on a stick and then put it outside of Marie Antoinette's window of one of her best friends to like torment her. Um, When they finally captured them after they had executed her husband, they kept her alive for years and would like torture and just like they were so mean to her son who was like the future. He would have been the future king of France. Uh, They would Uh like he was nine years old and they would force him to like say horrible things about his mother and like beat him and just be like really awful to him and completely separated her from him when they actually like went to execute her they like completely just man it's it's disgusting it's actually like hard to talk about because they were so awful to her son and to her and just the whole of it all her son actually ended up dying in prison because of a lot of the things that they were doing to him so she was kind of the last of her whole family to die as well and they were just horrible they They were trying to shame her in any way they could, even up until her death. And something that would happen at that time, too, is they would make a death mask, which is they they would create a mask based off of the dead person's face and make it look like them in life. And they had them do this and then continued to, like, dance around and mock the death mask for, like, Mm -hmm. years to come as this, like, symbol against the French royalty. And so it's just kind of – it really is, like, a tragic story because – I don't think she was deserving of all of that. Of that, yeah. Uh, I don't think anyone's really deserving of all of that. And it's not even like she killed people, like Mary <laughs> the First. Yeah. I yeah. mean, people were dying of starvation, but I don't think she, there's nothing, I don't, I don't think she could have done anything different from what she did. Um, like, yeah, is she without criticism? No. no. Did she deserve her fate? No. No. I don't think she no. really had any power in what happened. And that's yeah. the most tragic part of it all is it's a 14-year-old girl who gets thrown into a different country, country and yeah. basically with no education or expectations and literally turns into the biggest enemy yeah. of France just because yeah. they felt like it. So really sad. Um, obviously, there's been tons of media depictions of her. I feel like she's been shown everywhere. Practically every celebrity has dressed up at her at some point. Um, Mm -hmm. Chanel did an entire collection based on her and her fashion because, like, yes, she had really ostentatious fashion. It was kind Mm -hmm. of what was expected of them. I actually have planned to cover her portrait artist in the future, so I'll talk a little bit more about that. She had tons of portraits done because that was kind of her way of communicating with the French people. Like, if she wanted them to stop spreading 
vicious lies about her being a lesbian. <laughs> then she painted pictures of her as a mother. And, you know, like, well, she didn't paint them. She had her portrait yeah, artist yeah, yeah. paint her as, like, a mother. And then um, just different things that she tried to communicate because she was trying to communicate with the people in a way. And it just didn't work. Obviously, yeah, she was beheaded and then thrown in an unmarked grave. That's the story of Marie Antoinette. I didn't even go into as much detail as I could have because it literally was making me nauseous. But I feel like the Sofia Coppola movie does a really, really good job. It doesn't focus on the revolution at all, which a lot of people are mad about, and it doesn't focus on her execution. Um, mm -hmm. It just focuses on like her life in the French court and what that was like. And like I said, people criticized it for looking too much like a reality TV show or like a teen drama. But that literally yeah. from the sound of what was happening, that's it literally what it was. Yeah. yeah. I think that's like the closest depiction we could get to it um, of basically what it was like to be in Versailles at that time. And I think it helps yeah. you kind of emphasize a little bit more with like the fact that she was a literal child in an impossible situation. And mm -hmm. was not deserving of how the media depicted her and still continues to today. Yeah, dang. Ended with a real, <laughs> a real good one. There. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I think it's so interesting for all of these women, just like how the news, like art and media and like journalism have so really much control. Yeah. yeah. And like that that's really the case for all of just kind of nuts that's like what i think was most crazy to find of is like what was really driving these public opinions and also how long it all lasted and how it just you know like art perpetuated this all well, which is crazy what's absolutely insane is the fact that like okay so the opinions that existed of them at the time of their life i feel like are the ones that have continued today Mm -hmm. And it's like, aren't we at the point now where we could look back with a little bit more of like a critical eye and yet and be like, hey, like maybe there's some nuance here. Maybe someone's not all bad, all good or anything. Yeah. Like that. And yeah, I feel like it's literally like we were kind of saying the most effective propaganda is like literally whatever mm -hmm. story they wanted to tell back then is kind of the one that's continued throughout time. Well, I mean, and even like you know, Catherine the Great having sex with a horse. Like, yeah, I asked because my, you know, my husband's really well versed in politics and history. Like that's his, I, I almost said hobby, but like it goes even past that. <laughs> um, but like, and so I asked him, I was like, is there anything like that's like based on? And he's like, I don't know. He's like, it's just what people would say. Mm -hmm. Like, I think they just tried to like be like, oh, she's a whore. She sucks. She's unfit to rule so yeah. this but it's like even still that it's like I kind of had heard of that and I knew that that was like a rumor about her you know yes. when it was like I don't know anything about this woman but I know that people say that so yeah um actually one thing I forgot to bring up with Marie Antoinette is that there was like a quote they shared on the podcast episode that talked about how people have this obsession with like doomed beauty the idea of like a beautiful mm. woman like failing like think of Marilyn yeah. Monroe and stuff and I think that that especially is true for like female political leaders that totally like even with Cleopatra it's like oh well she couldn't be pretty and intelligent she just you know she was like a doomed beautiful woman that had woman. a tragic end you know and yeah. just like this and weird... like that's why like all the depictions are focused on her death mm -hmm. when it's like she was so much more than how she died guys exactly so, yeah, I just I think it's 
this strange idea that media continues to have with especially women. You don't hear about the kings as much as you hear Mm -hmm. about the women behind all of this. Interesting. Well, I hope that you guys enjoyed this topic. A little bit of a, eh, you know, slightly deviant deviant by going into like politics Mm -hmm. and women political leaders, but it all ties back to the arts and it all ties back to the way women have been (laughs) perceived incorrectly and everything. So hope you enjoyed it. And as per usual, check out our Instagram, which is more than amuse podcast, subscribe, write and review. It really helps us out. Yes, we would love that. And happy that you're here. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Bye.